A.W. Tozer said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Tozer recognized that each person is shaped by what they desire. In other words, we become like the things we worship, which is why we have been taking the time over the last couple of weeks to look at how God has revealed himself. And this is so important because we humans have a propensity to incorrectly see God, uh, which is a, a central trait that began from the very beginning in Genesis 3. So God wants to make it crystal clear to everyone who he is. So in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, we hear God's divine name in his attributes. These verses are quoted more often by other biblical writers than any other verses. And that does not include the hundreds of indirect allusions that we find through the scriptures as well. Dr. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project said Exodus 34 is the John 3.16 of the New Testament. And to this day, many Jewish communities begin their worship services by reciting the attributes of God in Exodus 34. It's a key, key text. So we've looked at how God is abounding in love and faithfulness. And last week, we looked at how God has a name, Yahweh, And today, I want to look at the attributes, the compassionate and gracious God. Now, imagine living in the ancient Near East, around 1500 BC. You're a Hebrew, formerly a slave in Egypt, and now you're traipsing through the desert around Mount Sinai. You live in a universe of gods and goddesses, and these divine beings are anything but nice. Uh, You read any ancient text. The gods were mean. They're finicky, capricious, ready to fly off the handle at the simplest of things. So in the past, you made sacrifices. Naturally, to keep the gods off your back or to get the gods on your side. At first, those sacrifices started out small with a bird, maybe a goat. Then if you had the funds, you'd ratchet it up to a bull. But eventually, if you wanted to appease the gods, you'd give them a child. Maybe even your firstborn. If you live in the ancient world, you live in the fear of the gods. But then Yahweh, creator God, comes along. And he rescues you. And he saves you out of Egypt, leads you through the Yom Suf and across the desert. And he gives you food and water to survive the journey, and you've done nothing to deserve it. Who is this God? This God is nothing like the God Artemis or Amun-Ra or Marduk. He tells you his name. His name is Yahweh. He wants to be in a relationship with you. And apparently, he really wants to know and be known by you. And then he begins to tell you what he's like. And the first thing you learn is that he is compassionate and gracious. In the Hebrew scriptures, order is a clue as to what's most important. And the fact that compassionate and gracious is at the top of the list of Yahweh's character traits means it's the dominant one, the most important 
thing there is to know about him. Now this phrase, compassionate and gracious, is rahum wehanun in Hebrew. Rahum wehanun is a pairing uh, verbs, meaning not only do these two words sound a lot alike, but they're put side by side to explain each other. So first, rahum is compassionate. Sometimes it's translated simply as merciful. It's from a root word meaning the female womb. And the idea behind it is the feeling a mother has toward her infant child. There's some wonderful examples of this, of where rahum is used in the scriptures. In the history books, there's a quirky story about two women fighting over a child and both of them claim to be the child's mother, but it's the ancient world and there's no DNA tests. So King Solomon comes up with an ingenious plan. He'll cut the infant in half and give a piece to both mothers. Hopefully that'll flush out the true parent. So in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 26, true mother was deeply moved out of love for her son. That's Rahum. And said to the king, please, my lord, give her the living baby, don't kill him. Again, in the original Hebrew, it reads that she was deeply moved by her rahum, her intense, visceral, motherly love for her child. There's another one in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 49, verse 15, Yahweh says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion? on the child she has born? Though she might forget, I will not forget. And then one of my favorites is from the Hebrew poet in Psalm 103, verses 8 and verses 13. You'll notice, first the writer quotes Exodus 34. It's a key text. He begins by saying, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, and then he speaks to the Rahum of God, and he says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So Rahum is how a parent feels about their children. And this is just a glimpse, a faint echo of how Yahweh, God, feels about his kids, about you and about me. Tragically, for some of you, this doesn't connect very well. Your family of origin is uh, slightly warped and out of shape, and you have had a difficult time coming to know what a compassionate parent is like. But for others of you, this taps into a deep part of your soul. Especially if you're a parent yourself, you know that there is no love as fierce as that of a mother or a father for a child. The love of a man for a woman, a soldier for their country, a sports fan for their team, it doesn't even come close to the love of a parent for their kids. So it's this emotive, visceral, in the marrow of your bones kind of love that is stronger than life itself, and it's how God feels about you. So rahum is compassion. It's a feeling word. Now, in contrast... Gracious is an action word. And in Hebrew, it's hanun. It means to show grace, 
to show favor. It's something you do. It has the idea of giving help. To honun, to be gracious to somebody, is to help them out in a time of need. And again, the word pops up in Psalms 86, verses 15 and 16. Again, the poet quotes Exodus 34. It's like Exodus 34 is a key text. He begins in verse 15. But you, Yahweh, are compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And then comes a prayer. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Here, a prayer for God's grace is a prayer for God to rescue, to save. For the God who responds to actually do something. So to recap this, compassionate is a feeling word. Yahweh is like a mother or a father, and we're like his children. And gracious is an action word. It means like a parent, God comes to the rescue when his kids need help. And these two words together show us what God is like. He is the compassionate and gracious God. When we come before God, whether in the morning prayer or in worship at church or afternoon walk or in the middle of a crisis at work, we come before a God who feels, who cares about us, and a God who acts, who wants to help to do something about our situation. Now, for the Israelites in the Exodus story, this challenged the way they viewed the relationship with God. They were used to fearing the gods. You had to pacify. You had to appease the gods. But with Yahweh, you become before God. Not based on what you've done or what's been done to you, but based on who he is. Based on his mercy. So let's keep going. All this talk sounds really warm and fuzzy. But there is a disturbing side to the mercy of God. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there is a lot of violence in the Bible. Obviously, the ancient world was a barbaric, cruel place. Not much has changed since then. And Yahweh, as always, is way ahead of his people, coaxing them forward to a world where you actually love your enemies, not behead them. But that's a long journey, and so we read a lot about the bloody war stories along the way, and the kind of stories that atheists blog about and fundamentalists yell about, and most of us just skip over, pretend like they're not there. Because these stories in the Old Testament are a challenge. But there's even greater challenge in these stories, and it's the stories about God's mercy. Because there are more stories about his mercy than any other. One of my favorite stories is about the prophet named Jonah. In the opening line of Jonah's autobiography, in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, we read that the word of God came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian was, uh, Assyria was the dominant empire of the day, the arch enemy of Israel. 
They'd been at war with the Hebrews on and off for centuries, and the Ninevites were the stuff of legend. A few decades ago, archaeologists found a Ninevite library, and their writings are cray-cray. They are absolutely insane. Speaking of a city he just destroyed, King Sharmalesar II had this to say, a pyramid of heads I reared in front of the city, and then the youths and maidens I burnt on top of it. Because of the Syrians, we now have the Geneva Convention. Can't do that anymore. Uh, his son, Sennacherib, had this to say about a king that he had defeated. I filleted him, put the skin on the wall of my city. Okay? Of the top ten things you don't want to happen, have happened to you, as a king, getting skinned alive is on the list. One of Sennacherib's descendants, King Ashurbanipal, was true to the family name. And writing about another king, another war, he actually pierced his skin, his chin, and then passed a rope through and led him around like a dog. Had a kennel for him. These are the Assyrians. In northern Wisconsin talk, we say, these are not nice people. They're not nice. And if you're Jonah, Nineveh isn't exactly where you want to plant a church. Which is why the next line in Jonah 1 tells us that Jonah ran away from Yahweh and headed for Tarshish. Now, Nineveh was to the east of where Jonah is at just a few days walk. Tarshish was to the west across the ocean on the edge of Spain. It literally is the edge of the known world. In Hebrew, Tarshish means Timbuktu. I just made it up. Just seeing if you're, <laughs> seeing if you're hanging with me a little bit, okay? Jonah runs in the opposite direction. To the very last vestige of civilization, and you'll notice this odd line in the story. As terrifying as the Assyrians were, he's not running from them. He's running from Yahweh. Why would he do that? He's a prophet. He is the mouth, mouthpiece of God. Well, after a run-in with a storm and a fish with digestive issues, Jonah finally ends up in Nineveh. And he goes around the city preaching one sentence message. This is found in Jonah chapter 3 verse 4. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's all the effort he put into his sermon. No three-point sermon, no cute story about kids, no altar call, just a countdown. Yahweh's going to kill you all. But in a shocking twist, the Ninevites repent. They turn away from the worship of the other gods and the violence and injustice that come as a result, and they turn to the worship of Yahweh, the Creator. Even the king repents. He calls for a day of mourning. People put on sackcloth, and they all beg, the text tells us, for mercy. And then we read in Jonah 3, verse 10, When God saw what they did and how they turned away from their evil ways, He relented. And did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. He was going to destroy the Ninevites. But when he saw genuine repentance, he had mercy and he responded. That's what God 
does. But that's when the story even gets more interesting. You think Jonah would explode with joy. He had a front row seat to one of the greatest moves of God in human history, but instead he throws a temper tantrum. And he vents to God. This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish, he says. And his worst fears have come to pass. And then wait for it. In Jonah chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he quotes Exodus 34 back to God. He says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, Yahweh, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. You see, Jonah is mad, seething with anger, because Yahweh was compassionate and gracious to his enemies. Because God, by nature, responds to everyone. And here's the point of the story. We all love that God is compassionate and gracious, especially with us, with our friends. But about, what about when he's merciful to our enemies? What about when God shows mercy to people who hurt us, stomp on us, gossip behind us, lie about us, betray us, divorce us, abandon us? What about when God is merciful to them? That's the problem with this God. You just can't trust him to keep back blessing from people who don't deserve it. He just goes around blessing all sorts of unsavory characters, people who aren't religious or spiritual or even good, because he's compassionate and gracious to everybody. And he goes around blessing all sorts of people who don't deserve it, and I am proof of that. I don't deserve it. And neither do you. Who am I to think I deserve God's blessing more than somebody else? So Yahweh is also just. He does get angry. But for now, his baseline emotion towards you is always mercy. We see this all over the teachings of Jesus now. One of Jesus' most disturbing and unpopular teachings is about enemies. Matthew 5, 43 through 45, he says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 2,000 years later, we still are grappling with that statement. But for Jesus... This isn't an abstract idea. This is who God is. He goes on in verse 45, that your father causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And remember, this is written in an agrarian society where the sun and rain were gifts from God. And Jesus is essentially saying that every time the sun comes up and rain comes down, that is God loving his enemies. Because by nature, God is merciful. This language of mercy is used throughout the Gospels. 
Over and over again, we're told about people coming to Jesus. In Luke 17, ten men with leprosy come to him. Have mercy on us, they cry. In Luke 18, a blind man begging on the side of the road cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In Matthew 17, a little boy under the control of a demon, his father comes to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on my son. Story after story after story, people come to Jesus and beg for mercy. Why? Because Jesus' mercy is born out of his character, because that is who God is. So last week I said, who God is has implications for who we are. There's a deeply Hebrew idea that goes all the way back to Moses on Mount Sinai. In the oldest rabbinic writings on Exodus 34, 6, the rabbis would talk about imitating God. How is Israel's God to image God, to copy and emulate, mimic what God is like to the world? The way the world is supposed to know what God is like is by looking at the people of God. So Exodus 34 isn't just ground zero for theology. It is how we are to live. God is compassionate, so we are to be compassionate. God is gracious, so we should be gracious. It's part of our DNA. It's part of being in the family. You'll notice Jesus' rationale for why we are to love our enemies in Matthew 5, 43. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. The word children is translated heirs. Not only are we God's children, we are God's heirs, the royal children of God himself. And the family's name is at stake. It is our responsibility. It is our job to carry the family honor. To represent God to the world. Which is why Luke, Luke 6.36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. The world needs mercy. A lot of it. We have plenty of tweets and op-eds and talking heads. But what we really need are sons and daughters of the Father to go out and show the mercy to the world. Mercy is one of those things you just can't have enough of. You just can't. So in closing, let me ask you a few questions. First, who are your enemies? Who are your enemies? The people who abuse you, stomp on you, trash talk you, drive the knife a little deeper, make your life a living hell. The people you hate. What would it look like for you to show mercy to them? Even love them? Maybe start by forgiving them. But you say, but they're not even sorry. Doesn't matter. Release them from your thirst for justice. Pray for them. And don't pray for a flat tire or a bankruptcy or their plane to go down on a freak tornado. Even though we all want justice, pray for mercy, for a blessing. And be ready for God to answer it. 
Secondly, who are the people you have daily opportunities to show mercy to? The people you rub shoulders with, people you work with, go to the gym, people here at the church, people at home who need mercy. And just as a hint, they are usually the people who annoy you the most. If you have a wedding band on your fourth finger, then it's your spouse. Marriage is the art of learning to forgive over and over and over again. Marriage only works when nobody is keeping score, when nobody wins or loses, when every day is a chance to give and receive mercy. If you're a parent, then every day you have a chance to show mercy. Parents, one of the most important jobs you have is to show your kids the character of God. And if you love them well, it will make it that much easier for them to believe in a God who is compassionate and gracious. But if you're cranky and always biting their cute little heads off, then telling them God is love, don't expect it to just sink in. Or maybe you don't have kids or even a spouse, you're single. Maybe for you it's a sibling or a friend. But here's the thing. Difficult people are not hard to find. There's plenty to go around. If you don't have any, contact the church office. We have a list. (laughs) You need people like that in your life. If you don't have any, again, the holidays are coming up. We all have that weird uncle. But who has God put in your life to frustrate you and rub you the wrong way? Listen, every time you see them, every time they annoy and upset you, make you mad, it's an opportunity to be God to them, to show mercy. So don't miss it. And finally, do you honestly believe that God is compassionate and gracious? Do you believe this to be true in the deepest part of your being? That God is like a parent? That he feels compassion for you? That he's gracious? He wants to act and help? Do you come to him in trust and freedom and intimacy and anticipation like a child to its parent? Exodus 34 has allusions all throughout the scriptures. One of them is Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hopefully you hear the echo of Sinai there. This is a claim about how we are to approach God, and I love the writer's choice of words with confidence. We're to approach the God who speaks the world into existence with confidence because we are his kids. We come to his throne of grace not as beggars off the road but as sons and daughters, royal heirs to the kingdom. Confidence. That's how we come to God like the little kids we are. So we appeal to his compassion. We ask for his grace. 
Would you bow with me in prayer? Our compassionate and gracious God, thank you for your mercy. None of us here deserve it. None of us here could earn it. It is a complete gift from you. God, help every single one of us here today to live in the reality of who you are. And as men and women created in your image, help us to be imitators of you. Help us, Lord, to represent you well. Help us to live compassionately and graciously. We need your help. We need your wisdom to do that. We need your strength. So we come before you this morning with confidence, and we ask, knowing that you are the one who hears, who feels, and who responds. Thank you for your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.